Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. I too have been enjoying the warm weather, although I'm not a gardener. Uh, I've enjoyed breaking out my motorcycle. Any of you ride motorcycles here? Yeah. Yeah, so I rode mine in today. If you're curious, it's the Blue Triumph right out over here. All right, so uh, we're continuing our series today in Nehemiah in chapter 4. And the book of Nehemiah is not just a book, it's not just a story of the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. It's a story of God renewing and rebuilding his people. Uh, Jerusalem, the place that previously had housed the very presence of God, now lay in ruins, right? And in particular, the wall around Jerusalem lay in ruins. And because the city was left undefended, God's people were unable to go and worship. Um, at this point, it was dangerous to go to Jerusalem, right? And so there weren't, there weren't many who would go to Jerusalem and worship and make sacrifices to God because it was, it was dangerous. Also, God had so much more planned for his people. They were destined for greater things than the despair and the hopelessness uh, that they found themselves in. So God sent Nehemiah, in essence, to revive them. Not just to rebuild the gates and the walls, although that was important, but to actually rebuild the people of God. We saw last week in chapter 3 that the people started to rebuild. They're working together to repair the walls and the gates. And uh, every day around the perimeter of the city, the Israelites were working to close the gaps, uh, to finish the wall, to finish building the gates. Everything seemed to be going well until their enemies heard what they were doing. And when these enemies heard what they were doing, rebuilding the gates and rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, uh, they unleashed all kinds of insults and threats and attacks upon the people. So much so that it caused them a lot of fear. They were afraid. But even though they had a lot of fear, it's interesting, God didn't just stop the attacks, right? Instead, He worked through Nehemiah to keep everyone moving forward, rebuilding in spite of the attacks. And this is often how how God works. He doesn't just remove the obstacles. He He doesn't just eliminate the enemies. In this case, the Israelites' progress on rebuilding the wall, it brought a lot of things to the surface in these surrounding groups that were around Jerusalem. It brought things to the surface like jealousy, anger, hatred. Um, The Israelites had some very real enemies who were angry that the walls were even being rebuilt, right? On a natural level, these surrounding countries uh, had been exploiting Jerusalem's weaknesses uh, for their own profit, right? They had a lot to lose. They didn't want Jerusalem becoming too strong to be able to push around, right? To manipulate, to exploit. But there's a spiritual dynamic happening here too. 
There's something beyond the rebuilding of the walls. It's about Jerusalem once again being a city that displays the glory of God, um, displays the glory of the God to the nations and proclaims the very name of God, proclaims his greatness, proclaims his holiness, uh, proclaims his faithfulness to the surrounding world, right? One of the antagonizers, Sanballat, I mean, he probably doesn't know it, but the anger that seethes within his heart is fueled by the devil, right? And by the way, the devil is real, okay? And he's powerful. He's nowhere near as powerful as God, but he is powerful. And he hates God. He hates God's glory. And he hates God's people. By engaging in the work of God, right, the mission of God, the Israelites suddenly find themselves locked in mortal combat with the enemies of God and the enemies behind the enemies of God, Satan. This war isn't against people per se, it is for the souls of people. Even our enemies aren't our enemies, right? Because Jesus said to love our enemies. He said to pray for them. Paul says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness, right? Those are the things behind the scenes, right? Those powers of darkness are hell-bent on stopping us. The famous 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the powers of evil are mad against the people of God. If they can in any way injure or annoy us, you may rest assured that they will do so. They will leave no stone unturned if it can serve their purpose. No arrows will be left in the quivers of hell while there are godly men and women at whom they can be aimed. Satan and his allies aim at our hearts every poison dart they have. This is as true today as it was in Nehemiah's day. We live in a world at war. And we're going to learn some principles today as we look at the fourth chapter of Nehemiah about how we can battle the enemy of our souls. Verses one through five, again, say this. I want to read it again. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins. 
for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. So the first principle we learn here from Nehemiah is this. If we are going to endure the attacks of the enemy, the very first thing we need to do is to cry out to God. Cry out to God. This can be challenging because there are voices uh, that will cause us to doubt ourselves, doubt our worth, uh, to doubt God's working in our lives. Um, Other people, and even our own thoughts, can conspire to convince us that following God's will for our life is, is just a fool's errand, right? It's pointless. It's a waste of time. So for the Israelites who are trying to follow Nehemiah's lead to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the people conspiring to stop the rebuilding, right, the people who are really just tools being used by the enemy, right, are Sanballat and Tobiah. We saw them briefly a couple weeks ago in chapter 2 when Nehemiah arrived from Persia to begin the work. I want to go back and have us read verse 2, chapter 2, verse 10. It says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. And once the people were ready to rebuild, right, we see in verse 19 it says this, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? And of course, Nehemiah rebuked them. Here's what he said in verse 20. The God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. And now in chapter 4, these these two guys show up again, attacking again. Not with weapons this time, but with words. Sanballat asks this. He says, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? So he's implying that they're weak, that they're slow, that they are ill-equipped and unprepared. And then Tobiah adds his own insult. He says, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Almost sounds like the taunts of a middle school boy. Right? Not very mature. It's important to understand that the verbal assaults that the enemy brings us through others, and sometimes even in our own minds, right? they often come when we're on track. The enemy of our souls hates when we have momentum towards renewal, right? towards healing, towards restoration, towards fortifying and extending God's kingdom. So it's then that the lies and the accusations and the challenges, unfortunately, are strongest. These men certainly didn't want their 
position or their relationship with Jerusalem to change in any way. Everything was set up the way they liked it. It was nice having God's people operate in a way that benefited these surrounding countries. So, so when they attacked with their words, it was almost, it was almost like poison uh, designed to infect God's people. But Nehemiah wouldn't have any, any of it. He prayed a prayer. Many of us, I think, we couldn't imagine praying. So Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, but Nehemiah prayed in a way that would make most of us squirm. Here's what he prays in verses 4 and 5. Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. So this very honest prayer was prayed in defense of God's kingdom and of God's honor. These are cries against injustice. And just as there are some in our society who can't imagine a God who actually executes justice, there are many who can't imagine a God who doesn't. Nehemiah wouldn't take matters into his own hands here, but he wouldn't accept their attacks either. Instead, he brought it all before God, and he asked him to judge them. The second way God helps us when the enemy comes attacking uh, is this. He reminds us to keep our eyes on him. Keep our eyes on him. After Nehemiah prayed that prayer, uh, they begin to get their momentum back. Verse 6 says this, At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. So we see that they're working with enthusiasm, which is good, uh, but they were only halfway done. Halfway is dangerous because... Halfway is where we're susceptible to discouragement. We've come so far, right? And the exhaustion of the journey starts to set in. And we still have so far to go. If you've ever run a race, or you've ever um, like climbed to the summit of a mountain, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you start, you've got a lot of energy. When you get halfway there, you're halfway through it, you know, you're already exhausted. And it can be discouraging knowing that, like, you still have so far to go. It was at that moment that Israel's enemies began to conspire. They formed a coalition to try to stop their efforts, try to stop them from rebuilding the walls and the gates. Like on all sides, north, south, east, and west, right? Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, they were all very angry, all very angry. And they plotted to battle against God's people. Verses 7 and 8 say this. 
But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. It's interesting that their goal was to throw them into confusion uh, because that is a primary tactic of the devil himself. What followed uh, were three comments from three different groups, all of which demonstrated this confusion that started to set in. Even though Nehemiah uh, and the others guarded the city, which is in verse 9, it says this, but we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Um, Even though they were guarding the city, some of Nehemiah's people in Judah uh, became discouraged, right? And they said this, it's in verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. So they were overwhelmed and they thought they would never be able to finish this wall. The second comment was the word of the enemy that was beginning to spread throughout the city. It's in verse 11, it says this. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. It was a vague threat uh, that put Nehemiah's team on alert. Um, When was this attack supposed to happen? No one knew. And in the third comment, some of the Jews of that area repeatedly came to Nehemiah and they said this, it's in verse 12. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So they wanted Nehemiah and the workers to get off the wall, right? So that they would stop endangering them. They wanted to go back to the way it used to be. They wanted to go back to just living and coexisting and even being taken advantage of by the surrounding countries. What would Nehemiah do in response to these three comments? First, he stationed people with various weapons in the open places so everybody could see that they were being defended, that the walls were being defended, right? Verse 13 says this, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then he made a comment of his own. It's in verse 14, the next verse. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So while some people said the job was too enormous and others said that they said that they had insufficient strength for the task, Nehemiah said that they should remember the power of the Lord. While some said 
that the enemies would be coming in to attack and to begin to pick off God's people, Nehemiah said, don't be afraid. And while some said that the Israelites should just stop building and continue to just live with, with their enemies the way they used to, Nehemiah said, fight for your homes, fight for your families. So what we learn from Nehemiah here is the importance of keeping our eyes on God and obeying him, right? Even when everyone around us is filled with fear. Even when the enemy is taunting us, is mocking us, and even threatening us. You remember the story of David and Goliath? Um, Goliath taunted the armies of Israel for 40 days and nights and he thought he could not be defeated, right? Big giant of a man. 1 Samuel 17, 11 says this. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. But when David arrived, he couldn't believe what he had heard. Right? He wondered out loud how a man like Goliath could curse the living God and get away, get away with it. Um, no one else had thought of God at all, right? They had only seen the giant, the giant of a man. But David saw through and above the giant, right? He saw God, the power of God. And for God's glory and honor and reputation, he flew into battle, right? Ex expecting that God would help him. Right? Small David against giant Goliath. Right? We often experience a similar temptation to take our eyes off of God. Right? When we are facing the giant, we see the giant and we stop looking at God. We become overwhelmed uh, by what may be what seems like limited resources, or we get overwhelmed by um, our own fear. We get overwhelmed by the attacks of the enemy. But even in the midst of it all, it is important to keep our eyes on God and to follow where he is leading. To hear that still, soft voice and to obey. Um, all of us need hundreds, maybe even thousands of reminders throughout our lives to keep our eyes and to keep our ears on the Lord, right? because we're prone to wander. We're prone to focus more on our fears or the enemy's attacks or our own inadequacies or even sometimes the misplaced counsel of, of, of people around us. But God gives us grace here. Psalm 103.14 says this. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. And so he gives us hundreds, sometimes even thousands of reminders that we need. Reminders through his word. Reminders through his spirit. Reminders through our pastors, through other believers, um, even through circumstances and dreams and prayers 
and all of the other ways that the Lord speaks to us. But the key is to keep our eyes on him. So when we're under attack, we learn from Nehemiah that we need to cry out to God. We need to keep our eyes focused on him. And then three, we need to fight along with him. Fight along with him. In the last part of our scripture today, we see, we see Nehemiah really coming into his own. Um, what I mean is we see Nehemiah at his finest. Uh, verses 15 through 18 say this. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeters stayed with me to sound the alarm. So the enemies had heard that the Israelites knew what they were up to, right, and that God had frustrated their plan. So Nehemiah and his team got back to work on the wall. And once they were back to working on the wall, Nehemiah became like even more determined. Nehemiah knew that the enemy would keep pressuring them, and so he prepared the builders for battle. Right? While they were holding their building tools, they were also holding their weapons. All the weapons they mentioned were the weapons that you could have gotten your hands on. Like, that was all of them. Those were all the weapons you could get at that time, right? Swords, spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. That's armor, right? He even, he even set up an advanced warning system, like trumpets, right? So that everyone could run to wherever the enemy was attacking. Nehemiah armed the builders with weapons, and he then prepared them to use those weapons. During the day, some people built while others guarded them. During the night, some people slept while others guarded them. And at all times, everyone was armed, they were clothed, and they were ready for battle. They even stopped going home at night. They stayed right there. They slept right there at the building site. It was a time of sacrifice for sure. They didn't know when. They didn't know when the attack would come, but they knew that they would at some point have to defend their turf. All this is in verses 21 to 23. It says this. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. And right here, in the middle of the description of Nehemiah's strategy, um, he makes another short and yet very profound statement. It's in verse 20. It says this. 
When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding. Then our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. I want to unpack that statement a little bit. If you think about it, it, it might sound a little bit confusing. So after amassing weapons, right, strategically spacing out the people on the wall, setting a guard, organizing the shifts, Nehemiah said that God would do the fighting. Would God do the fighting? Yes. Would the people do the fighting? Yes. So did that mean that God wouldn't be doing the fighting? No. Nehemiah's whole story is a story of the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Would God do the fighting? Yes. Would the people do the fighting? Yes. And this is just how Nehemiah rolled. So back in Nehemiah 2, uh, when King Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem, he gave Nehemiah a military escort. Here's the verse. It's Nehemiah 2.9. It says, When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Thirteen years before that, when Ezra the priest made a similar journey, he declined the military escort. Here's that verse. It's Ezra 8, verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from enemies along the way. After all, we had told the king, our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him but his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So Ezra wanted everyone to know that God would protect them, so he denied a military escort. Nehemiah wanted everyone to know that God would protect them, so he accepted military escort as the means by which God would protect them. Both Ezra and Nehemiah fully understood that their protection came from the hand of God, not from the hand of the king. Yet both responded in very different ways. In Nehemiah's case, his philosophy was God fights, but so do the people. So here's another example in scripture of this, of this very same principle. In the book of Isaiah, God promised to heal the good, godly king Hezekiah. It's uh, Isaiah chapter 38, verses 4 and 5. It says this. Then this message came to Isaiah from the Lord. Go back to Hezekiah and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. But then God told Hezekiah through Isaiah, just a few verses later, to take medicine. It says this, Isaiah had said to Hezekiah's servants, 
Make an ointment from figs and spread it over the boil, and Hezekiah will recover. So who did the healing? God or medicine? Yes. Here's another example. In the book of Acts, God promised Paul that no one on his ship would die in the storm. So Acts 27, verses 23 and 24 says this. For last night an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and he said, Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. Then when some sailors uh, tried to escape the boat, Paul announced that unless they stayed on this ship, everyone else would die. Uh, it says that just a few verses later, in verse 31, it says, But Paul said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, You will all die unless the, soldiers, unless the sailors stay aboard. So who would protect everyone's lives? God or the sailors? Yes. So as we face opposition, as we face attacks and challenges, uh, we need to understand this. Our God will fight for us. And then often, we must fight along with him. We aren't alone. Truly, the fight is all his. But we're right there with him. He gets all of the credit. Does God fight or do we? Yes. But with all this talk of fighting, uh, what are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? Well, we might be fighting to follow God's call in our life. We might be fighting for our marriage, for our family, for our own health, for our integrity, for victory over an addiction. We might be fighting for the church, for the purity and the beauty of the gospel of grace, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are all things that are worth fighting for. When Jesus came, he was the perfect mixture of divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. He entered into our fight. The Son of God determined from the foundation of the earth that he would come and he would save us. And when he came, he became one of us to fulfill the perfect law that we couldn't keep. Like Nehemiah, Jesus faced opposition, lies, discouragement. Like Nehemiah, Jesus was scorned. He was mocked. He was attacked. Jesus didn't believe the lies. He battled through the discouragement. But his weapon... His weapon wasn't a sword, it wasn't a spear, it wasn't a bow. His weapon was the cross. He won the battle. 
He won the battle not by overpowering his enemies by force, but by sacrificing everything he had and dying. The cross was the weapon the Romans used against Jesus. It was also the weapon Jesus used against our own sin. Jesus took the weapon that was meant for him and he used it as a weapon against sin, against death, and against our greatest adversary, Satan himself. He did all of this for us. And all this goes back to Nehemiah, chapter 4. What he prophetically says in our chapter today. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Let's pray. Lord, truly you are the God who fights for us. Especially as we're fighting for the things that matter in life. Our marriages, our children, our integrity, our health. Maybe even sobriety whether that's drugs or alcohol or food or sex, whatever idol, Lord, that we turn to instead of you. Maybe we're fighting to walk out our calling in the kingdom. Maybe we're fighting to see people who have no hope reached with the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, God, you are the God who fights for us. Lord, I pray, I pray for each person here. I pray for each family here who is in their own fight. Pray, God, that you would strengthen them, you would encourage them, you would go before them and protect them, and, God, you would fight for them. Fight against the schemes and the strategies and the lies and the accusations of the enemy. God, whether those come from without or they come from within, Lord, break the power of the enemy in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.